You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are pleased to announce the Leaders and Legends podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find us at allindianapodcastnetwork.com, allindianapodcastnetwork.com. You'll also be able to find several other really fine podcasts. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Craig Fearman who wrote a book which has gotten absolutely amazing reviews. It's called Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. Uh, If you want to look it up, it's on Amazon, and we're going to plug it several times. Craig, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Also joining us on the Leaders and Legend podcast is our sometimes co-host, an Oval Office veteran and all-around PR pro, Pete Seat. Pete, take it away. Well, thank you, Robert, and thank you, Craig, um, for writing a book that I devoured, as Robert mentioned, you know, background, having worked in the White House myself for President George W. Bush. I love reading about the presidents, and, you know, we're used to reading about what sets the presidents apart. You know, Grant, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, the military leaders, we've read about Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, the senators, Obama, the community organizer, Trump, the real estate developer. But here in Author-in-Chief, an extremely well-researched and enjoyable book, everyone should pick up a copy themselves, you look at something that binds the presidents together aside from being president. And that is, if not all, were at some point in their their pre- or post-presidency an author. So I'd love to kind of start off by taking a step back, and if you could share with us the genesis of the book, uh, you know, you wrote towards the end that it took 10 years. It was 10 years in the making. So where did the idea come from and how did you tackle such an ambitious project? Sure. Well, first, I just want to say, I, I really like your observation that this is about a, a book that finds commonalities among the presidents. And, and one of the big surprises for me was how deep and long this tradition went. I talk about two kinds of books in this book. I talk about campaign books, which are sort of books that presidents write before they run for office and that often help them win the White House. And then I talk about legacy books, which are the ones we're probably more familiar with, the kind of presidential memoirs where they sort of reflect on their time there. The first campaign book was written by Thomas Jefferson. The first legacy book was written by John Adams. So this history, this uh, this history of commonality of presidents as authors is as old as the history as, of the American presidency itself. It's also worth saying though, that, that the reason that this history is so long and that there so many presidents have picked up their pens is because America is full of readers. And so people who vote 
in America care about being well-informed and care about coming to a rational decision about who they want to vote for. And books for the longest time have been the best technology to do that. We don't always think about books as a technology. We just think about them as books, as kind of furniture, something we've always had in our lives. But one thing I tried to trace in the book and a big reason it took me so long to work on was that books have changed a lot. Books have gotten more affordable. Books have gotten easier to move from one spot to another. And all of those changes in, in books meant there were changes in readers, changes in presidents, changes in elections. Um, the way I got the idea was actually a little bit further back even than 10 years ago. It was in 2008, which was an election where books were right at the center. Um, obviously, Barack Obama was a very exciting candidate. John McCain was an exciting candidate. And, and both of them had books that were right there in the middle of the, of the national conversation, whether it was Dreams from My Father or several books that, that McCain had written at that time. And so I just remember reading those books, thinking these books are really good and it's, and it's exciting that so many Americans are reading and talking about books. And was there some kind of history there? And so once I realized that nobody had ever written a book or even really very many extended articles about this topic, I just had to make a list. And in making that list, I was like, oh my goodness, this starts with Jefferson and Adams. This isn't something that's happened once or twice. This is something that's happened again and again. It's just that nobody's ever really pulled the story together. And so that's the task I undertook. It, it just took a while to do it. Well, you know, your book is as much about authors in chief as it is about the growth and expansion of the literary industry in the United States and how the two are really intertwined. You know, you talk about how books were produced and printed and how blockbuster sales in the case of Reagan and Clinton also brought about lackluster substance um, in what they produced ultimately. But it was, it was interesting to read about, you know, you talk about Thomas Jefferson. And at the time that he wrote, it was a sign of arrogance to talk in the first person. And a lot of the authors of that time were writing in the third person. And then you had the acceleration to ghostwriting and someone like Coolidge uh, who found shame in using ghostwriters, whereas someone like Kennedy was shameless about it and ultimately accepted a Pulitzer Prize that was probably unearned. So can you kind of talk about how those two were on the same trajectory um, over the course of time that you wrote about? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. This idea of author, it's, it's like a book. We sort of take it for granted. Oh, this is what an author does. They, you know, have books for sale and they go on podcasts and they talk about their books. But, but that's a pretty new thing. Even in the 18th century, if you were going to write a book and publish it under your own name, that was kind of a revolutionary and a bold act. It was seen as, as sort of too arrogant and too vain. And that was especially true in America. If you go back and read a lot of the pamphlets that were published during the Revolutionary War period, a lot of times people would publish under pseudonyms. The Federalist Papers is an example from a little bit later that was published not under names like Alexander Hamilton or John Madison, but under the name of Publius. Um, because if you publish something under your own name, you were putting the focus on you as a person instead of the focus on your ideas or on the country, you know, this, this democracy that, that, that celebrated lots of people, not just one person. All those same cultural dynamics apply to people who ran for president as well. When you're talking about George Washington or Adams or Jefferson, all the way up through most of the 19th century, presidential candidates would not go out and say, hey, these are my ideas and this is why you should vote for me. Today, that feels like the most natural thing in the world. Like, how else would you run for president? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? But in that earlier time period, for the same reason that writing a book was seen as something a little bit arrogant, a little bit revolutionary, going out on and stumping and making your case for why you should win a po political office was also seen as a little bit arrogant and, and maybe even conceited. So 
those processes changed over time and then they sort of changed at the same time. And that's one thing I really enjoyed while working on my book, whether it was, you know, looking at Lincoln, who was the first candidate to really work hard to bring a book of his own speeches out, uh, even though he had to keep his role sort of secret. I mean, he kept it so secret that I'm the first historian to really make the case, hey, Lincoln wrote a book because he worked so hard to kind of cover his tracks because to be known as somebody who wrote a book would cause you problems. Then you go forward to somebody like Kennedy who did not write a book, but worked very hard to make it seem like he did write a book. And I found new stuff about him too. I was working in the Kennedy Presidential Library and finding documents that, that no other historian had ever seen before. But in both cases, you know, we're not just talking about books and we're not just talking about specific presidents. We're talking about how campaigning changes. We're talking about how literary culture changes. All these big things are shifting, you know, all the time. So I, I thought you buried the lead in the book because about halfway through, you quote Kennedy in a conversation with Nixon in the Rose Garden, where Kennedy said, quote, there's something about being an author which really builds the reputation of a political figure. And this is something that presidents um, clearly found out as candidates. And really, Andrew Jackson was kind of the pioneer in going from the what, the substance-based book to the who and making it all about story and personality and trying to find a different way to connect with Americans. Right. Now, it's, it's key to note, though, that with Andrew Jackson's book, his name was not on the front of it, except as the subject. The book's called The Life of Andrew Jackson, but somebody else wrote it. Now, Andrew Jackson was working behind the scenes, recruiting writers, contacting publishers. I actually found letters in Andrew Jackson's handwriting that no one had ever seen before, which was, you know, a real thrill for me as a researcher. And in those letters, you can really see Andrew Jackson doing the work and thinking through the strategy behind the scenes. But when that book came out, it had to seem like somebody else wrote it because if Andrew Jackson wrote his own book, then he would be too arrogant and conceited to run for president in the first place. By the time you get to somebody like Kennedy or Nixon, though, they want the book to have their name on it, even though they maybe didn't necessarily do the work. So it, it's a complete inversion. It's one of those fun ironies that you find in history. Um, but in either case, books were right there at the center of the debate. And that's something that has happened again and again across the centuries. Books really matter to Americans, especially during election years. So as part of the process of, of compiling this book, how many folks did you talk to? How many of these libraries, you've mentioned a, a couple of them already, how many did you physically visit and sift through documents? Sure. I, I interviewed well over 100 people. Um, that Sometimes that includes people who worked on campaigns or, or worked in Washington, especially for the later chapters when I was writing about people like Reagan or Clinton or Obama. Um, sometimes it was interviewing historians because I relied on a lot of really good research that historians have done, especially about the book trade. Um, so well over 100 people. I, I sort of stopped keeping track once I crossed that threshold. And then more than a dozen archives I went to in person. And really that even understates the amount of work because there have really been amazing changes in technology where you can now through library subscriptions, look up obscure newspapers and sort of see what was written in those newspapers. So when I was working on Lincoln's book, for instance, I found so much new material because these small newspapers in Indiana or in Illinois that aren't at the Library of Congress and you know maybe you're only at a couple libraries in, in their states are now you can search them from anywhere and you can put in search terms like the title of Lincoln's book and, and you know, make the time frame 1858 to 1861 and then find what people were writing about at the time. And I love that stuff because I really wanted to capture, you know, not just what these books were like and what the people, the presidents who wrote them were like, but, but what did the books feel like to other people, you know? 
I, in 2008, read Obama's books and read McCain's books and thought, wow, this is cool. This is going to shape my ideas about who I'm going to vote for, that kind of thing. Well, what was the person like me in 1860 doing? What was that person doing who was getting the book and reading the book and thinking about it? And I was able to answer that in a really concrete way. And, and, and that's fun. If you're somebody who really likes history or really likes reading about presidents, I believe my book will kind of tell you the history of yourself. So, you know, with many things, it takes but one to break the mold and launch a new tradition. And you see that again and again throughout your book, where, as I mentioned, we went from third person presidential accounts to first person. Uh, Buchanan wrote a post-presidency book, uh, but it was really Grant who brought us meaningful legacy prose. Coolidge had a campaign la uh, launching book, which was later perfected as Obama, uh, by Obama, as you've mentioned. But I'm curious, you know, although he's considered the worst president in history, James Buchanan really, you know, started the tradition of publishing that legacy book based on his time in office while still alive. Yet, as you write, it was widely panned. So why did his abject failure on the project not stop the whole enterprise dead in its tracks? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Buchanan was... was the worst president we've ever had, I think. And he might be the worst presidential author too. His friends would send him reviews of his new book and there were so many negative reviews and they were so cutting that Buchanan finally told his friends, I'm good, Let's. <laughs> you don't need to forward me any more reviews. I think I, I, I get how America is taking this book. Um, so that book was, was a failure. But the reason I think that it continued past him is that I wouldn't necessarily give Buchanan the credit. He was the first person to publish this book in his lifetime. But the reason he published it was not because he grew up as a reader or a lover of books. I mean, if anything, the opposite, which is one reason why his book wasn't very good. What motivated him was this huge force. Um, and, and again, it gets at, you know, my book is a book about presidents and their books, but it's really about a lot bigger stuff too. And so for Buchanan, that force was the Civil War. Up to this point, when people wrote autobiographies, they would their idea was this will be published after I die. Think of some of the most famous autobiographies in American history, like Benjamin Franklin's. That book didn't appear when Benjamin Franklin was alive because it couldn't. If he had published that book while he was still living, he would be seen again as sort of arrogant and conceited frankly, un-American. So that book had to wait until after he passed away. And that was the model up through a lot of the 19th century. The Civil War really changed that. It, it rewrote pretty much every rule in American culture. And so all of a sudden, people were less worried about, well, is James Buchanan arrogant and conceited or not? And more worried about, well, what did James Buchanan think about this life-changing, nation-altering war we all just lived through? And so not just Buchanan, but other people like um, James Early in the, on the Southern side, William Sherman on the Northern side, lots of generals, lots of uh, political figures began writing their autobiographies in real time in the decades after the Civil War because there was such intense interest in it. And so the Civil War was really the, the turning point for the sort of modern political autobiographies we think about today. Despite that big shift, Grant, who wrote the best memoir of anybody, still didn't want to do it. He just for whatever reason, didn't see himself as a writer. And even his friend, Mark Twain, I have this scene in the book where they're sort of talking and Mark Twain is like, let's do this. This book's going to sell. You're the perfect person to write it. And Grant's like, I'm just not a writer. I just don't see myself that way. And it took a personal tragedy. It took Grant um, filing for bankruptcy, losing all of his money, and, and soon after developing a, a form of cancer that would become fatal. Those two forces made Grant realize I only have one chance to sort of try to create my legacy and, and to pay my family's bills. I'm going to write a book to do it. 
somehow under those circumstances, he wrote a fantastic book. And, and that book was also one of the biggest sellers in American history to that point. Well, and he did it on, under a time crunch too. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was facing death and sitting on his porch, writing away day by day. You've got a great picture in the book of him all bundled up with, with a skull cap and, and a blanket around him, sitting there writing. And, you know, as you, you mentioned in the book, John Quincy Adams wrote for comfort in his mm -hmm. post-presidency and to lay down a marker, a pre uh legacy. It, is that what it comes down to for a lot of these leaders is they want to ensure that their words are a part of the historical record and not necessarily um, you know, bastardized by some historian who doesn't really understand the full context of their decisions? Yeah, I think I think it's it's two factors. It's money and it and it's the the desire to write a prebuttal, like you're saying. And and the interesting thing is it's always been that way. You know, when Thomas Jefferson, who Thomas Jefferson wrote an autobiography, one of those um, one of those less personal ones that that you've talked about, and he uh, wrote it. He didn't want to publish it in his lifetime, but within months of him dying, his family was trying to come up with a plan for how do we publish his autobiography because we have huge debts we need to pay for. And they tried selling his slaves. They tried, um, you know, selling off some of the books that he had left over and other things. But one of their plans was let's sell his autobiography because a lot of people are really interested in Thomas Jefferson. So you can see even back that early, money was really an important motivator. And it, you know, it was an important motivator for Grant as well. I definitely think you're right though, that that desire, I mean, presidents are control freaks, right? Like they, they spend four or eight years controlling everything and or at least trying to control everything, even though external circumstances, uh, you know, end up overpowering or, or challenging them in ways they don't expect. So they, they want to think that they can control things, even if they can't. And so that extends to their historical legacy as much as anything else. So they want to write a book that says, this is why I did what I did. And this is what you should think about me. Are those books effective in that way? No, they're not. And that's one thing, place where Grant is actually a really good example. Grant wrote a fantastic book. Most people think it's the best presidential autobiography ever written. But what's really interesting and what I tried to point out in my book is that even though it's this wonderful book, it was not effective in terms of shaping Grant's historical legacy. You know, it was a huge bestseller at his time. He made his last edits only two days before he died. Everyone in America wanted to read this book. Everybody in America was proud of Grant and his book. But in the decades that came after, that book couldn't stop historians in the South from sort of creating this image that Grant was, you know, a butcher and a drunk and a corrupt president. Now, only today, only in the last 10, 20 years, have historians started to show that actually Grant was a really good general and, and a better president, even than we've given him credit for. But it took a long time for, for that to come about. Even a book as good as Grant's couldn't really save his, his historical legacy. Well, I'm sure that Robert wants to geek out on Grant here, but but let me jump in with a question real quick because you talked about you know presidential control freaks, and not only can they not control historians who are going to write long after they're gone, they also can't control the former staffers <laughs> who trade integrity for riches and publish insider gossip. You know, it started with Lincoln, it exploded under Reagan. What role have those books, the contemporary buttle, if you will, played in, in propelling presidents to get something down on paper? Sure. Yeah, this is another example where you can sort of look at individuals who are doing things, but also look at these big forces that were shaping them. Because those books started coming out 
you know, with Lincoln, especially his assassination, like the Civil War was such a, a nation altering event that people wanted to read about it right away. But even in the books that came out after, like I'm thinking of one by, by a staffer named Emmett John Hughes, who wrote about Dwight Eisenhower. He wrote this book that was it was, I mean, it was, it was harsh, but it wasn't completely negative, like some of the books we can think about that have come out in the last couple of years about the Trump administration. But it was a book that was, you know, it, 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 it was harsh, but, but still respectful. It came out, I think, seven years after Hughes left the White House. And even then people were saying, wow, that's, he's really cashing in. <laughs> he, he only waited seven years to write his book. What a, uh, what a, what a bad person he is. Obviously, things are totally different now, and you're absolutely right that the Reagan administration is when it changed. It changed so quickly that there were people who left the Reagan White House publishing their books before people who had left the Carter White House had published their books. So they actually lapped the previous administration, and they changed because of big changes to the book trade, because all of a sudden, people weren't thinking about getting you know, $10,000 or $100,000 for a book. They were getting millions of dollars because these were the kinds of books that could be sold at places like Kmart or Walmart or at places like um, Borders Books or Barnes and Noble or um, Walden Books in, in malls. You know, there were changes in the book trade that created a lot more money and a lot more emphasis on speed. And so lots of, uh, lots of aides to the presidents wanted to publish their books. And I'm sure that's only contributed to presidents' desires to, to write books as well. Well, you know, Ronald Reagan and especially Nancy Reagan were frustrated by the aides who wrote books that were negative about them and, and they answered them in books of their own. And they also made a lot of money from those books as well. And that's a dynamic that you've seen on both sides of the aisle. I mean, certainly the Clintons did that. The Obamas have done that as well. That's just sort of, you know, a, a fact of, of modern life in American politics. You know, you're actually a couple years younger than me, but you date yourself when you say things like borders and Walden books, you know, that, that people haven't seen for years. But the really the impact that bookstores like that had, especially on these blockbuster books, I mean, the lines and hordes of people who would come to a book signing for Bill Clinton. But it dates back to, was it Truman that did one of the first book signings? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite chapters in the book is on Harry Truman. And, and that's because even though he's sort of sort of kicked off this kind of modern process we're talking about, where he had a big book signing, you know, with thousands of people in line, and he had a book that was one of the 10 best selling books in America that year. Um, he, he, he still tried to hold on to some personal integrity, and he still didn't love love the process. They had to work really hard to convince him to do one book event. He did it in Kansas City, where, of course, close to where he grew up and where he still lived and, and where a lot of people really liked him, even though he wasn't a very popular ex-president at that time. But he kept saying, well, the book should be sold on its own merits. It shouldn't be about me. But finally, his publisher and, and one of the local booksellers in that area actually looked at the papers that this uh, bookstore owner in the area had and, and found amazing letters between him and Truman because Truman was such a lover of books himself. Um, one of the booksellers convinced him to do it. And the thing I really respect about Truman is that the book he wrote has some amazing passages, you know, the passage where he learns that FDR has died and that he's about to become president. It, it's incredibly well written and it's, it puts you right there. There are other passages that are maybe, you know, a little bit too much a president trying to control how historians are going to think about him. So it, it's an uneven book. But even though it's uneven, Harry Truman put everything he had into that book. He spent years on it. He actually didn't make much money off of it because he used so much of the profits that he received from the book to hire staffers to check to make sure that the facts were right and to hire different ghostwriters. 
he put everything he had into it because he was somebody who grew up reading history books and loving history books. And he wanted to write a book that would have, you know, historical weight and, and matter as well. And that's, you know, that's somebody who's doing it not for the money, not for their reputation, but just because books matter to them. And Harry Truman is a president that that was certainly true of. So I, I wanted to follow up on something because you, you've touched on this a few times and you touch on it uh, a few times in the book. And that's not just these presidents as authors, but these presidents as readers, which if you're looking for an idea for your next book, I think that could be another great way to bind all these leaders together is how they consume not just their briefing papers and policy white papers that are put in front of them, but how they read for historical knowledge and just for recreational purposes. I mean, George W. Bush had a years-long contest with Karl Rove, one of his senior advisors, to see who can read the most books in a single year. And this was a man who was serving as president of the United States at the time, and as you mentioned in a footnote, um, was an early adapter to the Kindle mm -hmm. and was taking it everywhere he went, consuming content constantly. So what role did reading play in the lives of these leaders who were also authors? Sure. Well, I, I think if you want to understand somebody as a writer, you have to start with them as a reader because that's that's where you become a good writer. That's where you get your ideas. That's where you shape your style. And, and that's as true for presidents as it is for any other writer. I could give you so many examples. Somebody like, um, you know, somebody like Thomas Jefferson talked about books like they were tools. He wouldn't necessarily say, you know, I love this book or I love this character. He would talk about books the way that somebody would talk about a hammer and nails, because for him, books were the way that you built ideas. You can very easily see that the Declaration fuses, fuses together different books that he had read and different ideas he had counted in writing. And, and that sort of tells you the kind of analytical and rigorous way that his mind worked. But that's not the only way to read. Um, somebody like Grant actually is a great example. I believe that Grant's memoirs are so good because he read novels his entire life. Um, we've talked a lot about sort of changes in society and changes in culture. And, and one of the changes that might surprise people is that novels were sort of considered not illicit, but they weren't, they weren't something that you, you know, you would really be proud to have read fiction. Um, James Madison has a great letter that I quote in my book where he talks about, yeah, I really like to read a lot of novels when I was younger, but you know, then I kind of got more mature and realized that as an adult, I shouldn't waste too much of my time with that. Whereas today, you know, we're all hoping that people will read novels or hoping people will read anything. But, but at that time, fiction was seen as something that was, you know, not as edifying or appropriate as, as reading nonfiction or reading the Bible or something like that. Anyway, because of those changes, Grant was the first president who really grew up and just loved reading fiction from the time he was young till the time he was old. He actually got demerits when he was at West Point because he was spending too much time in the library. And what he was reading while he was there was reading things like James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans. He loved reading fiction. And I think you can still see the imprint of that decades later when he's writing his own book, because the best parts of Grant's book are when he describes other people. When he describes meeting Abraham Lincoln for the first time and, you know, puts in one or two jokes that Lincoln told that really capture how Lincoln thought and talked. Or when Grant talks about meeting Robert E. Lee at Appomattox and sort of describing what he knew about Lee from being able to see him and what he would never know about what Lee was thinking. Those kinds of descriptions of other people, I mean, that's what novels are good at, right? They're good at characterization. They're good at showing us other people. And so I think Grant's reading um, shaped Grant's writing, and, and all of us as American readers are richer because of it. 
So I want to go back to something you said at, at the top of the show, and that was um, the appetite for for reading and for history that the American people have. And you know, you write in the book of the appreciation for history that Americans shared with the authors of that history, with these presidents. But forgive me for being a little bit of a cynic in in modern days, but do we live in a time in which the relationship is maybe playing out in the inverse? You know, we've got a plethora, really an embarrassment of riches when it comes to authors and outlets and perspectives, but maybe not the same societal hungry for history that we had 25, 50, or 100 years ago. Sure. Well, I think you can go glasses half full or glasses half empty on this um, approach. I certainly understand that that books are not as central as they used to be. I don't think anybody would deny that. There are more uh, there are more com- competitors right now. There's the internet. There's TV. There's lots of ways to get entertainment and lots of ways to get information. But I don't think the book is dead either. Um, one statistic I quote in my book was I worked with people at the National Endowment of the Humanities to get this: how many Americans had read at least one book of biography or history or memoir in the last year? And for the most recent years, we could get the statistic, which I think was 2017. The number was something like 80 million, so you know, close to one in three Americans. Now, would I be happier if that number was 300 million? Of course, I would. I'd be especially happy if half those people were reading my book. But it doesn't change the fact that 80 million Americans still read at least one of those books in the last year because we still realize that that books are different. If you wanna take time to step away from distraction, to take time to spend spend some time with somebody who's thought really long and really carefully about one or two big ideas, there's no better way to do that than a book. And so books still offer that opportunity to us. And so, you know, Obama's election in 2008, that was really shaped by one of his books. And it's not like that was that long ago. I mean, sometimes it feels like it was a long time ago, but it was only, you know, 12 years ago. And so that's an example, not that far, you know, not in the Kennedy era of our past, but just 12 years ago where a book really changed somebody's career and, and put somebody in the White House. Even our current president, you know, we think of him in terms of reality TV shows or his Twitter account, but what made Donald Trump a national star was a book. It was The Art of the Deal. And that was the book that really took him from being a New York celebrity to a national celebrity who was appearing on cable TV talk shows. And it's a book that still kind of captures his, his voice and his worldview, I think, really accurately. So books are not as central as they used to be. I, I wouldn't deny that. But I would still say that books matter a lot and that if you're somebody who enjoys reading and thinks books are an important way to see the world, you're not alone. So one of my favorite parts of the book, if not the favorite part. You, you mentioned the Harry Truman chapter. The Grant sections are incredibly well done. But I love the end where you go through some of the highlights of presidential authorship and specifically how you uh, characterize them. I mean, you list Abraham Lincoln's speeches, parentheses, all of them. <laughs> um, you, you say, you know, Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs, parentheses, some of it. Of these, do you have a favorite? Well, this is, this is one of my favorite parts in the book. It was my editor's idea, so I got to give credit to him. But it, it's an appendix in the back of the book that's a really practical guide. Like, if you like this book, if you want to read more, and, you know, again, speaking to what we talked about, about the value of books, 
one thing books do that's really great is they inspire you to read more books, right? And so I wanted to have a really helpful guide to people where they could go to Amazon or go to their local bookstore or go to the library and find the next thing they wanted to read. And, and as, you know, that was written by a president instead of just this book about presidents. And, and we're actually working on an anthology. It's going to come out in October, but it's like 500 pages with sort of, you know, selections from Grant's memoirs, selection from John Adams's autobiography, these sort of best moments from presidential writing that, that people will be able to find in one spot. So that's what I've been working on this summer is kind of finalizing all that. But in terms of my favorites, I mean, Lincoln is my favorite president and, and Lincoln is my favorite writer who's been a president. That may just be my Hoosier bias talking, but I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I, whatever it is, I think Lincoln is, is the best writer and, and the most interesting writer to read. But I'll also throw out a really big surprise for me, which was Calvin Coolidge, because he was not a president that was on the forefront of my mind when I started working on this project. I don't think he's on the forefront of anybody's mind. He's not, you know, one of the five or 10 presidents that people immediately think of. But in terms of writing, there aren't five presidents who are better than him. He was a phenomenally good writer because he was a really good reader. He read carefully and, and passionately his entire life. And he wrote not just that book that helped get him to the White House that you mentioned earlier, but he wrote a wonderful autobiography. And it was one of the best-selling books in America in that time period. It was a book that everybody was talking about. And you know, it's kind of been forgotten. Nobody knows that Coolidge wrote a huge autobiography at this point, but it's a book that you can still, you can find it online. You can find it um, in bookstores sometimes. And it's still an amazing book. It, it helps you see what it felt like to be president. Coolidge clearly decided, I'm not gonna try to settle things with the historians, that's up to them. I'm just gonna try to capture the human side of the White House. What, what did it feel like to have that burden? How did I make the decisions I made? And I think that's a smart choice. I wish, wish more presidents made that choice as writers. And, and he's a writer that really surprised me. I didn't expect to go into this book becoming a huge fan of Calvin Coolidge's prose, but that's certainly, certainly what happened once I got to read some of it. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, ably represented today by Mr. Pete Seat, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and of course, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. And we should thank McAllister Machinery, who just re-upped their sponsorship of this podcast for another year. We hope they believe that we are carry on, carrying on the work of P.E. McAllister, who did so much for this city and state and chronicled so much that what happened in this city and state through his television program. And of course, we should thank once again, Wish TV. You can now find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. That's allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Our guest today is Craig Fairman, who wrote, as Pete has described, a marvelous book, Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. And if you don't believe Pete Seat's review, which I find hard to believe myself. The review in the Washington Post is wonderful, calls the book breezy and anecdote rich. Other reviews include Wall Street Journal and called Craig's book one of the best books on the American presidency to appear in recent years. We're very happy to have Craig on 
Craig, is there a Hoosier leader and or legend you particularly admire? Are we talking just in the in the presidential realm or or more broadly or you have the entire field? Oh, well, I mean, can I say Axel Rose? <laughs> you could say you could say Axel Rose or David uh, Lee Roth. Sure, sure. I, I mean, it's a uh, it, it's interesting how many really creative people we produce. Vonnegut is another creative uh, Hoosier that I really admire. I mean, let's let's throw Larry Bird in the list as well. Um, it, it's funny that you mentioned kind of you know Hoosiers and their influence because when I was working on this book, I was you know you have minor characters that surprise people that they maybe haven't heard of. And the problem I kept running into is that again and again, I would have these sort of minor characters who influence presidents in a surprising way. And they all turned out to be from Indiana. So the best editor that Grant ever had was a Hoosier. The worst ghostwriter that Harry Truman ever had was a Hoosier. And so I finally stopped identifying the state that they were from as I was revising, because I was like, my editor's not going to believe me. He's going to think that I'm just stacking the deck to fill my book full of Hoosiers. But what it was is it was that Vonnegut quote, right? Like wherever you go, you're meeting Hoosiers and, and they're doing great things. And, and that's true of history as well. We've produced a lot of great writers and editors and, and thinkers. And it's one of the one of the things I love about our state. Well, you're very kind to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast and you know, you're right in our wheelhouse in terms of what we want to talk about here. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention uh, right off was give us some examples of where the personality of the particular author really came through the book. Sure. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I feel like we've talked a lot about the sort of the bigger forces, the social forces that have shaped things. And that's definitely one thing that my book tries to do. But what really surprised me about looking at presidents as writers is I felt like I've seen the human side of them. And I guess it shouldn't have surprised me because we all know this in our lives. You know, if you're sitting down to write an email, you're opening yourself up and being very human because you're, you know, you're thinking, what am I trying to say? Why am I trying to say it? Who am I trying to say it to? There's just something about the act of writing that slows people down and, and kind of opens them up. And that's as true for us as, as it is for presidents. So I hope that each president I spend some time on, and, and I don't do all of them, but the ones that I really focus in on, I hope we can see the human side of them. Uh, one of my favorite examples is actually John Adams, who wrote an autobiography. And as we talked about, most presidents wrote autobiographies in this early period that were kind of impersonal and, and abstract. Sometimes they were in the third person, but not John Adams. And, and the reason I think John Adams wrote a book that was so revealing and so raw was that he couldn't do anything else. He, he, his personality was, was a very impulsive one. It was a very emotional one. And so even when he tried to sort of, you know, be buttoned down and, and follow the period, the standards of his period, the real John Adams just kind of fought its way out, no matter whether he wanted or not. So he would start out by saying, you know, I'm not going to tell too many stories from my youth because that's not appropriate. And a couple paragraphs later, he's like, I just want my kids to know that they don't have any other brothers or sisters running around who have other mothers than <laughs> Abigail. Like I, I kept to the straight and narrow. And I mean, that's just John Adams. That's, you know, if you read anecdotes about him from Jefferson or Washington or other people who knew him, he was somebody who couldn't help but be himself. And that was as true on the written page as it was, you know, in Independence Hall in Philadelphia or in anywhere else. Or in Paris. Sure. Or, or in Europe when he's scolding Franklin for being beloved. Oh, yeah. And for philandering as well. He didn't, he didn't well, like anything. Without realizing that, that Franklin was probably, was other than Washington, Franklin was the most important figure of the Revolutionary sure. War, the Revolutionary period. 
Is there someone who didn't write a book who you wish had written one? Well, I don't want to keep saying Lincoln, but I, I mean, it's, I think one of the big losses for American literature was that Lincoln never got to write an autobiography. We talked about how the Civil War kind of changed everything on a dime and presidents went from thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't write or maybe I should just write something that will be published after my death to writing in real time. And Lincoln was such a perceptive thinker and such a careful writer that to, th to, to get Lincoln's account of what the Civil War and what it meant and why he made the decisions that he did, I can't imagine a book I would rather read that's never been written than that one. So that's that's a real heartbreak. I mean, obviously his assassination is heartbreaking for 10,000 different reasons, uh, personal and historical. But one of the reasons is that he never got a chance to keep writing because I think he would have been like an Adams or a Jefferson, just writing a wonderful documents well into his old age. Pete was very kind to um, bring up my favorite president, which is Andrew Jackson. I love him so much. I named my son after him. And we actually have a podcast coming up uh, with the authors of book um, about Andrew Jackson and, and the role that the 1824 and 1828 elections played in modern politics. Sure. Uh, now, Jackson is, is the ultimate example, at least in, the, in his pre-presidential years, of the question I'm about to ask. But did you find in your research either evidence of or the temptation for settling scores? Yeah, there were definitely definitely a lot of examples of that. Um, John Adams is another example. I, I talked about how emotional he was and how he, you know, he once described writing slowly and carefully as physically painful. He said like slowing down to be careful about my writing is like a blow to my knee because he just, he was somebody who was all about activity and emotion and just, you know, like just, getting out whatever was in his system. But there was one time when John Adams was willing to revise carefully, and that's when it came to insults. <laughs> there, there's an example I talk about in my book where he's talking about Thomas Paine, someone that he famously disagreed with in print many times. And, you know, John Adams crosses out calling him a disastrous meteor and goes with like a star of, of the devil, or I can't remember the exact line. But like, when it comes time to insulting Thomas Paine or Alexander Hamilton, then John Adams will slow down and make sure he gets exactly the most vicious words he can choose. And that's, that's true of a lot of presidential writing. They, the only thing that stops them from doing more score settling is this desire to, to appear presidential. Um, Lyndon Johnson is, is another really good example. He would, when he was working on his presidential memoirs, like a lot of modern presidents, he would have ghostwriters working with him. They would dictate, you know, Johnson would take their questions, dictate responses, and they would try to write it up. And if you look at the raw transcriptions of what he said, which are at the Lyndon Johnson Library in Texas, they're amazing. They're so revealing. And he's talking about, well, Kennedy asked me to come up to his, his hotel room and he was still in his underwear. Um, and he told me a joke and it wasn't really that funny, but you know, a president expects people to laugh. So I laughed. Just so revealing about both Kennedy and, and frankly about Johnson as well. None of that stuff made it into the final book though, because they tried to write it up. And I interviewed some of the ghostwriters who worked with Johnson. They tried to write it up and capture the real Johnson. And he would read it and say, you got to cut all this stuff. I don't seem like a president in this, which. And the, the man who sold the country is gallbladder operations. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but, but when it came to something about, you know, seeing those words in, in on creamy paper and print, he, he had a pause finally. And so a lot of times there would be even more score settling, but this, this desire to be statesmanlike, you know, might prevent presidents from, from telling everything that they want to say, unless you're John Adams, in which case you're just going to, you know, let the cannons fly. 
Well, the one person I wanted to mention when we talk about writers, and I, and I get the sense uh, based on, on a lot of what I read about your book, but for, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is my other favorite president, and we're um, unab- unabashed fans of uh, the 37th president on this podcast, Richard Nixon, uh, much to uh, some guests' uh, amusement or disgust, one of the two. Nixon was phenomenally intelligent, was was a, a voracious reader, and wrote some absolutely terrific post-presidential books and pre-presidential what, what are your estimations of him as, as a writer and what do you think about, about his books and the impact they had not only on him as president, but perhaps more importantly, his rehabilitation after he resigned in disgrace? Sure. Well, what's interesting with Nixon is that he had several periods of rehabilitation, as you know, and, and, and each one of them books really played a, an essential role. I, I don't have a lot of Nixon in my book only because it was really important to me to tell a story. You know, I've tried to draw connections in our conversation and talk about presidents reading presidents or books influencing other presidents. And so when it came time to sort of take 10 years worth of research and put it into a narrative, I really wanted it to be a narrative and I wanted to keep it moving and entertaining and engaging. So I couldn't, you know, Nixon and Carter were the two presidents who produced so many books that I didn't get to spend a lot of time with. Um, and so I don't want any any other Nixon fans expecting a lot of that in the book because there's you know there's there's a couple pages on him but there's and there's new material on him from interviews I did but there's not a lot on him. That said, um, you know you if you're looking at his specific career, it was it was enormously important. I uh, probably my favorite book he wrote was Six Crises, which came after he lost the election to Kennedy, um, he is trying to decide what to do next. He puts together this book, kind of influenced by Kennedy, seeing books like um, Profiles in Courage and how popular they were. And so this book itself became a bestseller and itself became really influential. When Ronald Reagan was deciding just a couple years later, what am I gonna do next? How do I pivot from being an actor to being a serious politician? He could see that Six Crises was a big bestseller and that sort of influenced Reagan's own decision to write a book that, that's been forgotten today, but I think is a really revealing and interesting book called Where's the Rest of Me? And so that's an example of one of those early rehabilitations where Nixon uses a book to kind of reinforce and reorient his career and, and, and show those intellectual uh, bona fides. Um, there are plenty of examples after the presidency where he, I mean, right up until his death, he was continuing to work on books. By that point, most of them were sort of internationally focused and, and looking at you know his sort of role as somebody thinking about the world and America's role in the world. And those books, you know, they, they got him, um, the books were influential themselves, but they also did something important that happens a lot with books in this time period and in, in sort of the modern period, which is they offered an opportunity for him to, to talk about the books in a setting where even more people would see them. You know, hundreds of thousands of people bought Nixon's books, but millions of people would see him go on television shows on, on NBC or on C-SPAN or on Fox and talk about his books and talk about the ideas in there. And so that's one way that books can make a really important difference in this time period is they sort of give you the reason to have an ex-president on your show and they sort of define what the conversation will be about. And Nixon gave some really revealing interviews, especially on C-SPAN with Brian Lamb, who is a former Hoosier himself. Right. Um, and he talked a lot with Nixon about, you know, the writing of those books, but also the ideas in there. And I think that did a lot to, to change Nixon's uh, post-presidential image. Do you get the sense that presidents 
who either are generally considered in kind of the bottom level according to their performance, or maybe they are 50-50 and it just kind of depends on how they leave the presidency, that it's more important for them to chronicle their time in the Oval Office because they feel like they are uh, the last chronicler of what actually happened. In other words, don't listen to what the Republicans and the news media said about me. I'm President Carter. I'll tell you what actually happened. And that gives them a chance to be the biggest cheerleader for their own administration, which may or not have turned out to be what they were hoping. Sure. There's definitely the impulse to try to do that. I I don't think it's always successful. Grant's book is an example I mentioned earlier. Um, Carter's presidential memoirs would be another one where he worked really hard on those books and, and hope that they would help rehabilitate his historical reputation, but it did it didn't. It took a took more time and it took him turning his focus to international um, issues to, to habitat for humanity to other things. Um, what I think presidents would be smart to do is to just produce not only a personal book, but to leave behind a personal record. I'm thinking of presidents that we don't necessarily think of as really interesting presidents like James Garfield or Polk. Um, They are kind of interesting presidents because both of them recorded really intimate diaries while they were in the White House. And so somebody like Garfield, um, he he obviously was assassinated and didn't have as much time to have a really influential presidency. But if he had, I think historians would have even more interest in him and there would be even more big books about him because his diaries are so good and because you can really capture the decision-making process, what he's worried about, what he's thinking about. You know, I have a little bit of Garfield in my book because the diaries are so good and I, you know, I can read him talking about reading Sherman's memoirs and being like, I can't believe somebody is saying this. I can't believe a general who just fought in a war is saying this already. And so you can really see how Garfield's mind works about a book, but that's just as true about a lot of political things as well. So if you're a president and you're worried about your reputation, I mean, yeah, write a book partly because you'll get a lot of money to do it, but make that book personal. And then while you're in the White House, work really hard to capture diaries that really capture how your mind works because historians love that stuff because it helps them tell good stories. And you might not like the the decision or the outcome of the story. You might not like their analysis on the story, but if you give them really good material, they're going to write about you. I mean, Nixon's a great example, right? He left behind so much interesting material and so many interesting scenes and, and details that people are going to continue to write about him, whether they agree or, or disagree with the decisions he made. Has there been a president, at least in modern times, that isn't just a full-on history nut? I can't think of one, but you know, maybe with your research, you can you can fill us in. Where like this person wasn't necessarily a big historian. I mean, it's kind of famous that Kennedy was reading Barbara Tuckman's Guns Guns of August, which is a phenomenal book, right, right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Truman was a huge history buff. Uh, uh, Pete's former boss, George W. Bush, mm-hmm. is a, a true history nut. I know Clinton is a big fan of the Civil War period mm-hmm. as well. But do you think they kind of go hand in hand that the people who are really involved in learning and understanding history put a lot of effort into their book because they know it'll be part of the historical record? I think theoretically that will happen. But at the end of the day, you know, you're dealing with with an individual person who's going to their, their personality and their, their strengths or weaknesses are gonna, are gonna show up on the page. Clinton is a great example. Enormously well-read president, somebody who has read lots of fiction like Grant, so you would think might have that skill to sort of characterize and describe other people. Someone who's read a lot of history, 
speaks very carefully about kind of where he saw his presidency in the arc of history. But My Life is just not a very good book. Um, and the reason it's not a very good book is because he had too many distractions in his post-presidency. He was giving lots of speeches. He was worried about trying to help his wife's political career. And he just got too caught up in, you know, trying to name every single person he had met, trying to thank every single person who'd done him a favor, trying to attack every single person who'd done him wrong. And this is not me saying this. I mean, first of all, if you read my life, you'll see come to this conclusion yourself. But this is something his editor, Bob Gottlieb, a very famous editor who edited Toni Morrison and, and other people, um, you know, eventually wrote about working with Clinton on his memoirs himself. And Clinton, I mean, he was a procrastinator, right? He was somebody who, he was an extrovert who loved to talk to other people. Um, that's a great skill set if you're going to be president, maybe not the best skill set if you're going to be a writer. And so Clinton was so late on turning in his memoirs, a book that had that his publisher had paid $15 million for, that they were really leaning on to sort of be, you know, the, their defining book of that year, that eventually his editor started spending the night at Clinton's house in New York just to make sure that he would keep working. I mean, it's like a sleepover, right? And so you know, they got the book done, but those are not the conditions to produce a great work of history, even if Clinton himself was a history lover. So that's just think, an example. Let me ask okay. you a quick question. Forgive me. Um, do you think 9-11 hurt Clinton's books and the perception of him and his book just because it was such a history altering event? And that was kind of like, you know, the Cold War ended. Clinton comes to office. He had some conflicts, obviously, especially in the Balkans. But, you know, it was a time of relative peace. And they were writing, you know, you had Francis Fukuyama and you had others who were saying it's the end of history. It's a new era. And then 9-11 happens. And it's like, well, I don't know how interesting Bill Clinton and his presidency would be now, I guess, other than some of the more salacious uh, passages when we've just had thousands of Americans killed and now we're at war. Sure. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And Clinton has actually given interviews, which again speaks to his historical mind, where he's talked about, you know, I didn't have a war happen in my presidency. So even if I did everything right, there's a certain ceiling on how I'll be ranked as a president. You know, I'm never going to be compared to Harry Truman because Harry Truman had to make a big decision about the atomic bomb. And so Clinton himself understands that and sort of sees himself in that historical context. And so that, that kind of put a ceiling on, you know, whatever you think about him as a president, good or bad, there's a, because he was a president during a period of, of relative peace and relative prosperity, there's only so high he can go in, in those kind of historical rankings of, of presidents and where they fit. Even though he is capable of that kind of analysis and self-reflection, though, talking ab about himself as a president, you won't find a lot of that kind of insight in his book. And that's just because he had too many distractions and, and too much going on to really buckle down and do the work to make a great book. And so that's where, again, you can see that these presidents, even if they love history, their personality, their strengths and their weaknesses are, are both going to show up in their books. When you're Harry Truman and you decide to drop not one, but two atomic bombs, and you later tell your biographer that it wasn't the toughest decision you had to make as president, which he has always said or said uh, deciding to enter the Korean War was the toughest decision he had to make as president. That really, to your point, uh, separates the chief executives. Uh, one more question, then turn it back to Pete for a few more. And then we always end the, our podcast with the same five questions. And so you'll get those here in just a minute. The uh, last question I want to ask is, you spend some time and then it is very prominent in all the reviews that I read about John F. Kennedy, Ted Sorensen, 
in the book Profiles and Courage, which I believe won a Pulitzer Prize Mm -hmm. and sold massive number of copies and, you know, kind of played into uh, Kennedy's uh, Harvard intellectual side to complement his his wartime exploits. What was it like to do the research on that particular controversy? And I say controversy with the lowercase c. What were your conclusions? And do you think that it all affects the Kennedy legacy in a detrimental way? Sure. Well, this is where I would kind of go back to that idea of when you look at presidents as writers, you see their human side. Because if we're talking about was Kennedy a good president or not, the Cuban Missile Crisis matters a lot more than who wrote Profiles and Courage. I don't deny that for a second. My book, despite the fact that it's about presidents, doesn't have that much um, sort of partisan politics in it. You know, I'm not digging into like, you know, the, the silver standard, currency standard, and, and what side presidents in the 19th century should have taken or that kind of thing. Instead, it really tries to capture the personal side. And in terms of the personal side, in terms of what kind of person John F. Kennedy was, in terms of his personal ethics or personal morality, yeah, I think the Profiles and Courage debate is, is really important. Um, people can read the book to get the full story on this, but I'm actually pretty pro-ghostwriter. I think that ghostwriting is an important approach and it can work well, especially if somebody who's a president isn't necessarily a strong writer or doesn't have the time to do the writing themselves. Clinton's book, My Life, if he had had a couple good ghostwriters working with him instead of writing it himself, I think it would have been a much stronger book. George Washington, our first president, also our first president to use ghostwriters. So I have no issue with ghostwriting at all. But there's a difference between ghostwriting and award-winning ghostwriting. And, and John F. Kennedy uh, participated in the second. He did not work very hard <laughs> on his book, Profiles and Courage. And I know this because I was at the Kennedy Presidential Library. I found documents that nobody has ever seen before that really show that there's just no way that he could have done much work on this book because he was dealing with a really terrible back surgery at the time. And I mean, he was, you know, he was, he was having to heal. He was having to get better. Ted Sorensen, his aide, did most of the work on this. But while Kennedy wasn't very involved in the writing of his book, he was extremely involved in the promoting of his book. He was, you know, saying, I think we need a bigger author photo on the back of this. He was, that's the kind of detail and control that he was exerting over the book. The book came out, it was a huge seller, even though people assumed that Kennedy had written it himself. And it kind of could have been a happy story. It could have ended there. It it did a lot to put Kennedy on the national stage. He almost became vice presidential nominee in 1956, the year the book came out. It was already a big bestseller. It didn't need more. The story could have stopped there. But Kennedy wanted more. He desired more. And, and, And for reasons that are kind of baffling, he just really cared about what other writers thought about him. He really wanted literary fame. He didn't just want political power. He didn't just want to be the person calling the shots during the Cold War. He wanted novelists to think that he was a great writer, even though he didn't want to do the work to, to write a book that, that novelists would really like. And so he got the Pulitzer Prize for his book. And, and some of those documents I found at the Kennedy Library show that Kennedy himself was personally involved in getting the Pulitzer Prize for his book. It's not like his book was automatically seen as a contender for it, it wasn't even on the first list, the kind of the long list of books that that should be considered by the Pulitzer Committee. Instead, it got added after the fact because of people that Kennedy had nudged to sort of work on his behalf, backroom kind of backdoor 
politics that, that you know apply to book awards as much as they apply to presidential campaigns. And so Kennedy gets this award. And at that point, that's when this, the controversy really starts. And I mean, it was a big C controversy at the time. People were, were, were confused and people were frustrated and saying, we're hearing these rumors. We're seeing journalists on TV saying that you didn't write your book. Did you write your book? And Kennedy again and again would just say, you know, yeah, I did write my book. I don't know what they're talking about. He put so much energy into maintaining this myth. It really mattered to him that everybody thought of him as a writer, as an award-winning writer. It just didn't matter to him to actually do the work himself. And, and that, that's what I mean about this being a personal lens, because the story that I've just outlined, I think it probably tells you something about the kind of person John F. Kennedy is, even if it doesn't tell you as much about him as a president as, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've talked about different players in this obviously the authors themselves. We've talked about ghost writers. We've talked about historians. We haven't really talked about agents. And you write about who's, you know, the person who's arguably the most influential member of the process for the last several presidential books. And that's a lawyer based in Washington, a guy named Robert Barnett, who is extremely adept at running auctions between the publishing houses and getting top dollar for his clients. Kind of talk through the evolution of that process and how agents have been a part of this and particularly the role that Robert Barnett has been playing recently. Sure. So this is another thing that you can kind of date to the Reagan administration is that that period in the 1980s when everything changed. Um, David Stockman was one of Reagan's advisors who left. There were some controversial articles published that, that quoted him being critical of Reagan and his economic approach. And so then Stockman went out to get a book deal. And there, you know, I went back and read all the news coverage from the time and people were like, he might get $50,000. He might get $100,000. He got $2.4 million, and this is in 1980s dollars, and he got that because he was represented by this new lawyer named Robert Barnett, who was a young man at the time, and, and Mr. Barnett's been doing this ever since. He excels at getting people that top dollar that you're talking about. He is bipartisan in his workings. You know, he is the agent for the Obamas, and he is the agent for the Bushes as well. And he has the connections. He knows not just, you know, editors and not, he knows people who book TV shows. He's really an incredible operator and incredibly good at, at making those connections and getting those big deals. And I think he's really somebody who represents how book publishing and, and, and how media works in this kind of, you know, blockbuster age. That's what I call it in the book is that we're sort of, you know, once Reagan all the interest in Reagan, all the Reagan aides who want to sell their books, that's when we start to see the blockbuster approach to publishing. And yeah, it has something to do with like Walden books and the way books are sold, but it also has something to do with the politicians and the agents and, and the people who connect them. So Barnett is, I mean, he's a genius at what he does. One of the things that he does is he doesn't charge people a commission. You know, my agent, um, charges a, a certain percentage of my book and that's how he gets his money and and you know he does the same kind of stuff of selling the book and helping promote the book and all that barnett charges an hourly fee and we're talking thousands of dollars for an hourly fee which might seem like a bad deal but it's actually a great deal bob woodward who's one of barnett's clients said that barnett is you know the only bargain in washington dc and that's because if you're talking 10 or 15 percent of 2.4 million dollars huh, i'd much rather pay somebody thousands of dollars for a few hours than pay 50 15% of that kind of figure. So Barnett has found a way to work the system that works for the politicians, that works for the publishers, because these books are very profitable. I guess the, the outstanding question is, does the system work well for readers?
not only is he the greatest bargain in Washington or the only bargain in Washington, but you used a word to describe him that is rarely used to describe anyone in Washington, and that's bipartisan. I mean, I think that that to me is one of the most interesting parts of who Robert Barnett is, is that, you know, he works with the Clintons just as well as he works with, you know, a Trump kind of figure. Like he, it's all about getting the best deal for his client, getting the book out there. But to your point, do these blockbuster books really serve the readers and the general public that they're ultimately meant to serve? Yeah, it's, it's, it's capitalism trying to make a buck, but you also want to get a compelling story out to the masses. Yeah. And I really come at this from the perspective of readers. Like when I, when I was writing my book, I was also ask, always asking myself, you know, what did it feel like to be a regular person, a reader, a voter when Abraham Lincoln was president or when Ronald Reagan was president or when Barack Obama or Donald Trump were president? And I think one reason these books sell so well is because readers have always cared. You know, as we talked about earlier, do they care as much as they used to? Probably not. But there's still a desire and it's a desire. I don't know another word for it other than patriotic. There's a patriotic desire for Americans to learn about their leaders, to learn about their potential new leaders and their views on issues, to understand what happened and whether the right choices were made or the wrong choices were made. There's this very pragmatic and practical um, desire among American readers to read these kinds of books. And so I think that, that the kind of books that come out now, they have this huge audience built in because of this patriotic desire from American readers. Are they living up to that desire? Are they giving people as good a book as they can? Sometimes they do. George W. Bush's uh, presidential memoirs, I thought were, were better than most. Uh, Barack Obama is obviously a very good writer, but a lot of times you see books that, that aren't very good. Um, you know, Rand Paul, to pick a, a, an example I mentioned in the book, he had a political book come out when he was thinking about making a presidential run and he got in trouble because he plagiarized five pages of it from a uh, think tank online. He just copy and pasted, well, not even he, the ghostwriter that he had working for him, five pages into the book. And to me, you know, let's set aside, although it's a hard thing to set aside, let's set aside the ethics of plagiarism. That just shows that, that Rand Paul wasn't that concerned about the book as a book. Was he doing everything he could to produce a story and a set of ideas that, that you know, gave the reader his or her money's worth and his or her time's worth? <laughs> I don't think so. And, and too many politicians today don't take the time to, to write a book that measures up to the desire and, and the appreciation that America's readers bring. Hey, Spangle, did you hear that? Did you hear that about Rand Paul? I just want to make sure you're listening. Um, one other question I wanted to ask before we get to the five questions and wrap up the podcast is, what role or how much influence do first ladies have I know they write their own book these days and deservedly so, but how much impact do they have and influence that they have in their spouse's memoirs? Sure. This is another thing. I feel like I've said this a lot, but that's, it's kind of one of the big takeaways from my book. I think where the, where the history here is longer and more interesting than you would think. So when, when John Adams and Abigail Adams had passed away, their son started editing their letters. And the first book he published was a collection of Abigail's letters. These are, this is in the 1840s. And then he publishes John's letters. Guess who sold more? Abigail's by, by a long stretch. Um, so there's something about first ladies that have always been interesting. And a lot of them have written really good books. I talked earlier about how presidents sometimes feel this pressure to be too statesmanlike. 
and to sort of, you know, be too presidential and that keeps them from being as personal as they should be. And for that reason, sometimes I think first lady books are, are much more revealing and, and much more interesting. The, the example I always throw out there is from the Carters, um, both in both President Carter's memoirs and in uh, Mrs. Carter's memoirs, they talk about the Pope visiting the White House and what a big deal that was for the, for the Carter presidency. But in Jimmy Carter's memoirs, the story moves on from there. Only Mrs. Carter mentions that after the Pope left, the first couple watched a Bo Derek movie that night. I love that detail. I mean, I think it's really human, right? Like, let's hang out with the Pope and then let's watch a Bo Derek movie that night. That's the kind of stuff I want to know about our presidents, because that's the kind of stuff that any one of us would do were we lucky enough to meet with the Pope. But the president didn't want to include that because that's that's not a very statesmanlike detail to be watching a Bo Derek movie. The first lady did. And so I think sometimes first lady books can be as revealing or, or more revealing. Certainly Michelle Obama's book, which was one of the best-selling books in American history at this point, just been a, an enormous blockbuster hit. It really captures the personal side of their relationship. And I'll be very interesting, interested to see if when Barack Obama's book finally comes out, if it's as good at capturing the personal side of, of being in Washington as hers was, because hers is, is a high bar for him to clear. Well, in, in some cases, I think this is true in Mrs. Carter's example. The, the, the spouses have a harder time getting over the defeat in the case of whether it's Jimmy Carter or, or George H.W. Bush or other examples have a harder time. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty well known that Mrs. Carter never got over the 1980 defeat, the crushing defeat. She never thought much of Ronald Reagan or Nancy Reagan and probably had a little more leeway to express those because she's not quote unquote part of the club. Right. That's absolutely true. And, and Nancy Reagan is another great example. Her her memoirs, I think, are much stronger than Ronald Reagan's memoirs. And her, her memoirs are called My Turn, but the nickname they got in Washington was My Burn because she yeah. was trying to settle so many scores. <laughs> and again, that's something that first ladies have a little bit more leeway to do. In a lot of ways, their role is more constrained because they have a lot of pressures that, that men don't necessarily face in public life. But when it comes to writing, at least, they can kind of flip the table and, and be a little bit more honest and open. And, and sometimes their books are stronger for exactly the reasons you say. And a best-selling memoir, I would assume, would probably be have have a have a as its foundation a watershed event. Like I don't know that I would automatically say, forgive me, Pete, that I would automatically say that George W. Bush was a better president than Clinton. And there's a lot of good things you could say about Clinton's presidency. Uh, I would not have voted for Clinton over George W. Bush. But regardless of how I feel about Bill Clinton, to me, it would be much more uh, engrossing to read about September 11th, 2001, whether I was a Republican or a Democrat, liberal, conservative, or whatever, just to read. I like reading about one of the things we try to do with the Leaders and Legends podcast is talk to people who were in the room. One of the reasons I wanted Pete to come on the podcast, besides just the general sponsorship and, and he and I's personal friendship, is that he's been in the Oval Office. He's seen how these things work. That is so fascinating. So to to read George W. Bush's first person of account, person account of what not only of what happened, but what he was thinking, his frustration at not getting back to Washington, D.C. and his asserting himself as commander in chief. And that's not at all kind of why he ran for office. He had all these other things to do. So it seems to me that partisanship aside or political affiliation aside, you can really uh, grab on to you know, Kennedy and his role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Yeah, totally agree. And that the, the passages and decision points that cover 9-11 are the best in the book. They're, I'm trying to clear the rights for those right now because I want to include it in that anthology. I'm working on best presidential writing because you're exactly right. It puts you in the room and it helps you understand the events from Bush's perspective in a way that nothing else on the historical record so far can, because it's him saying, I knew this, I didn't know this, I felt this, I didn't feel this. And they're, they're really, it's riveting. It's like, it's like a detective novel or, or a mystery. You're just, you can't stop turning the pages for those reasons. And one of the best books I ever read about a presidency is uh, Ken Edelman's book, Reagan at Reykjavik, where he talks about the Reykjavik summit with Gorbachev and Edelman's in the room or, you know, he's in the room next door and Reagan leaves this meeting with Gorbachev. They come and decide everything and discuss everything through. I mean, that's, that's the gripping part of history that you think is preordained. But when you read about the process and the tension, then it gives you a whole new perspective. Totally agree. We end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions. We are on today with Craig Fairman, author of Author in Chief. Craig, are you ready? Let's do it. What was your first job? My first job was working at an IGA in Dillsboro, Indiana. That's a unique answer. Thank you. What was your first concert? My first concert was in college. So I think it was Lincoln Park and Incubus. Um, so what are you going to do? Wish it, wish it had been Axl Rose, but I was not born in the right time. Is it a natural transition from Incubus to being a historian? I mean, did you really feel it there? Uh, only in the sense that my wife really loved Incubus, probably still loves Incubus and, and also loves history and hopefully loves me. So that's the only transition I can think of. <laughs> All right. This is going to be tough for you. I know. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, one book that I really love is called The Metaphysical Club. It's by a historian and a critic named Louis Menand, and it came out, gosh, 20 years ago at this point, but it's all about pragmatism and this kind of philosophy in America of sort of, you know, kind of choosing the practical way to fix things and, and sort of trying to get things done as much as having debates about ideas. Um, that sounds really dry, but it's, it's a great, it, it reads like a novel. There are great characters and there are great people who are thinking these ideas. And Menand does such a good job of capturing this time period, which is kind of the late 19th, early 20th century and talking about the ideas and the people in it. And so it's a book that I've been thinking about because his next book finally, almost 20 years later, is getting ready to come out this year. He's one of my favorite writers. And, and so that's just a book in terms of like, if you want to read history that's like fun and engaging, but still packed with really big ideas, that book, The Metaphysical Club, is the one I would point anybody to. Thank you. I'm going to have to look that up for sure. Okay, here's another toughie. Sorry. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens. Which event would you choose? Are you guys going to air this if I mention Lincoln again? <laughs> I hey hey, we could have done this whole podcast about the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, and I would have been absolutely happy. 
Sure, sure. So you you understand where I'm coming from. Um, I mean, the thing for me is, how do you even narrow it down for Lincoln? Do you want to see, you know, um, do you want to see the, the debates with Douglas when he's sort of breaking onto the national stage? Or do you want to see one of the moments in the Civil War? I think I would have liked to see Lincoln in, in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates because it would have been fascinating to watch both of them, but it would have also been fascinating to watch that crowd and to see how many people were there. Some of them were there just for a good time, kind of like a county fair vibe, but some of them were there to hear two important politicians talk about slavery and whether or not it should expand, which was you know, the defining issue of America in that time. So watching Lincoln and Douglas do one of the debates, probably the first one in Ottawa, that I'd, I'd really like to see that. Or Cooper Union, the Cooper Union speech. That's another great one, yeah, another example. Last question, and Pete, remind me to send you this list so maybe next time you're on, you can ask the five questions. Uh, last question, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, Two hours, completely off the record. Whom would you choose? I think I would choose Barack Obama. Um, first of all, because we could talk about Lincoln. He likes Lincoln a lot too, right? So then I could, <laughs> I could find a way to work Lincoln in as well. But I, I think, you know, I've, I've studied his writing and, and his political career a lot. And he's changed on that some, but he hasn't changed as much as I would think in terms of just, you know, he he his famous 2004 speech, right? There's no red America, there's no blue America, there's the United States of America. That was the idea that he ran on and that was the promise he made. And his presidency was not able to follow through on that. And then we, you know, reasonable people could have arguments about why that was and how much that was Obama's choices and how much of that was the opposition's choices to him. Um, but that's exactly what I would like to ask him about. Sort of, you know, you had this theory for why you should run for president and what your presidency should accomplish. It crashed into reality. And although you got a lot of big things done that you and your supporters wanted to get done, um, your, your theory, to my mind at least, was, was proven to not hold up. What do you make of that? I really hope his presidential memoirs deal with that dynamic. That's one thing that I think would be really interesting to read, to see him sort of reflect and see, you know, you came in with this problem of, or with this promise of unity. And now, 12 years later, I don't know that our country's ever been more divided. Um, what do you make of that? That's a question I would love to, to see him write about in his book. And I'd certainly love to ask him to talk about it off the record as well. He certainly is capable of some really terrific observations, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of what you, oh yeah, he's going to say the same old thing. And then he says something and you're like, all right, I didn't expect that. And I can get on board with that. I think it's mm -hmm. one of his, one of his real strengths is, is he has sort of an intellectual consistency that I find appealing. I didn't vote for him either time, but I find appealing in that. I think that he, he sees the bigger picture in a lot of things like, yeah, I know you're upset right now and you want to do all these things, but you do realize what's going to happen afterward. And I don't want right. to speak for him, but, but I find I'm hoping that his memoirs are, are as compelling as he is, I think personally. Yeah. And that's the question. Is he going to be able to see the bigger picture about himself? Um, a lot of the presidents who've written their memoirs were not able to do that, but but certainly he is a great reader and a great writer, whether you support his policies or not. So it's kind of like, you know, if anybody can can write the book that, that does what you're talking about, you would hope it would be him. But I'll be honest with you, I am a supporter. I did vote for him, but I'm not sure that his book will be able to pull it off. We're just going to have to see because presidential memoirs are really tricky books to write. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, 
and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Again, we are very proud to announce that we are now a part of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Our guest today has been Craig Fairman, author of Author in Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. It is absolutely terrific. It's gotten gotten amazing reviews. I'll post the link on Amazon so you can pick it up. I've already had about a half dozen people ask me for it. Uh, We were joined today, too, by our intrepid uh, co-host, Mr. Pete Seat. Pete, thank you very, very much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Craig, thank you very much for coming on. This has been the highlight of my week. I appreciate both of you talking and the questions, and it's just fun to fun to do this stuff. So thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.